All right, 1 Peter 1, uh, 13 to 25, God's Word says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls. Hear this, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. Recently, I've found an interest in uh, photography not because I'm a good photographer or anything like that, or I'm artistic in any sort of way, but out of necessity to be of service to my son's uh, soccer team. My son plays soccer on the JV team for Bullet East High School. And I wanted to help serve the team in a way that no one else was serving. I know, and my daughter plays uh, varsity for Bullet East High School, and there's a mother that takes pictures and sends them out. And I know that I've put them to use in social media and taken some of her images and sharing pictures from her game. And it's just helpful as a parent to have that because I'm usually cheering uh, for what's going on and not concentrating on taking a picture. So I thought, there, I saw the need here with my son's team. I thought, well, I'll start taking pictures and send it out to the parents uh, on the team. Be a good way uh, to serve the team. Now, before you think that I'm so amazing for serving in that uh, capacity, it actually has a kind of a practical application to it. It's, it's helped me because I like to yell a lot at my kids while they're playing soccer, for one, and coach them from the sidelines. And I also have the tendency to let the referees know when they've blown a call. So... Handling a camera helps me to not do those things for the most part. In photography, clarity is important, right? Having clear images is important. Unless you're an abstract artist, which I really don't understand all that stuff, then they throw a blurry picture out in front of you and say, it's art, I don't get it. I want to be able to discern clearly what the image is that the photographer was taking a picture of. No one likes a blurry photo. Imagine you go and take family photos and they come back and they're all out of focus and blurry. You'd be a little bit upset with your photographer. My first go at soccer pictures 
granted me a lot of frustratingly blurry photos. See, I didn't realize the settings on my camera needed to be changed in order to catch these action shots of these kids running quickly down the field and dealing with light and the ball moving and all sorts of different variables that I didn't take into account. And so because of these frustratingly blurry photos, like I had one kid jumping in the air and it would have been a really neat shot if it actually had been captured in time, but it was just a blur of him going up and coming back down. And so what did I have to do? I I needed to go back to the camera manual, and I needed to read to understand how the camera worked and all the little uh, modes worked. There's a dial on the top with like 35 different modes on it you can click through. So I needed to understand the manual. I needed to read it. And, and then I also sought instruction from other photographers with a similar camera to, to what I have. And so I went on YouTube and I watched a couple videos and, on how to, to uh, take pictures of sports and action events without having to spend $5,000 on a new lens just with my simple camera that I had. And so I began to comprehend shutter speed and light and ISO settings uh, the result of, of the research and seeking to understand then took my blurry pictures and brought more clarity the next time out. And over, I think, the six or so games, uh, this, his last game was on Thursday. And I, as I went through and I looked through the pictures and got ready to send them out, I'm like, man, these are a lot better than they used to be. Like, you can actually tell it's a soccer ball and not just a blur going through uh, the image. Drawing this back around to 1 Peter, what's the point, right? Peter here in this passage, we've, we've heard the gospel and, and we're seeking to understand the application of that gospel in real life. Uh, the picture's a little bit blurry leading up to, we understand the work of Christ, but what's our work in uh, this growth in holiness? The picture may be a little bit blurry, but Peter here, now beginning in this letter, we're going to start to pivot. He's going to start moving that focus ring on the camera and he's bringing some clarity to the picture uh, for us this morning as we dig into this text. What does it look like to be a follower of Christ? What does it mean to grow in holiness? The, the focus is, is, is moving in, and, and we have the, the title of our sermon is Clarity. We begin to have clarity on what God expects of us as his obedient children. We bring a blurry picture into focus, and he does this first by giving us our first point, clarity of time. He gives us a clarity of, of the timeline, the time frame that we're in. I haven't really highlighted this point yet, although Peter has referenced it in the last two passages that we've been in. In the previous section, I don't know if you noticed this, but Peter hits on our salvation being, and he says this, it's revealed in the last days. Okay, he's indicating time to us there. He also repeatedly discusses this. He says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's speaking about time. These terms are forward-looking. It was the last point of our sermon uh, last week. It's forward-looking. And they help bring clarity to where we are in, in redemptive history, in, in the redemptive timeline. I believe, just in, in my searching the scriptures and, and discussing this with other followers of Christ and reading books, I believe we are in an era of time where the kingdom of God is this. It's been inaugurated, it's been ushered in through the ministry of Jesus Christ, but it has yet to be consummated, that is, completed, okay? Thank goodness, because if you look around, I hope this isn't the completed kingdom of God, right? Anybody with me? We live in a period of time where the kingdom is, I'll say this, is already but not yet. Okay, It's present but not fully completed. 
How do we conclude this? We can see much of the effects of the kingdom, most of which I believe are spiritual effects of the kingdom of God. That is, lives. We have a room with people whose, whose lives have been transformed by what? By the power of the gospel and the spirit, God's spirit, indwelling them and filling them. But we also witness some of the effects of the kingdom on the physical. For instance, we've seen advances in, in education. Okay? Many of our prestigious educational institutions were actually founded as Christian colleges. Okay? But many of them obviously went astray probably you know, mid-1800s or so when, when the influence of what we call Protestant liberalism invaded their theological views and directed them off course. However, their existence is rooted in Christianity, in the Christian faith. So we see advances in education and science and medicine. A lot of our hospitals are, are named for different denominations of the Christian faith. Okay, those were born out of Christianity. We see also movements in, in a positive direction in, in the area of justice within our society. And I believe that these, many of these positive influences, I know Christianity gets a bad rap sometimes, but the, po- the, the positive influence on Christianity and culture is massive. And it should not be discounted. The kingdom of God has influenced the physical realm as well as, obviously, the spiritual realm. We have, as followers of Jesus, been influenced by the, the spiritual improvement and enrichment of our lives because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. But we have to realize also that that the kingdom will not be completed or consummated or finished until this, until the return of Jesus Christ. We believe, based on scriptural teaching, that Jesus is coming back. At which time his word declares that all things will be made new. And so Peter focuses our attention on the time that we are in, in the, in the present, a time where we can see that God's Spirit is active and working, and yet we witness still evil, sin, and tyranny existing in this present time frame. And so the, the letter of 1 Peter definitely has what we would call an, an end times focus within it. Peter talks a lot about the last days and the revelation of Jesus He says this in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. We'll get to that in just a second. I want to focus you on this last part. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Later on in this passage, he'll talk about the last days or the last times. The last part of verse 13 is focusing our attention on time and where we are in time. We often seek to understand the signs that will accompany the return of Christ. There has naturally over the last 18 months been a renewed focus on this topic as we've struggled to understand everything that's happening in the world. And yet we mustn't lose sight of the reality that we will never truly know when Christ will return. If someone stands up here and says, I know the date and the hour, you better run out the building as quick as you can. 
It's why the dude in the, in the 80s kept writing the book and just changing the year every year. Oh, why Jesus is going to come back in 88 or 89 or 90. Sold a lot of books that way. No one knows. And the reality is this. If you look throughout Christian history, is that every generation has pondered the return of Christ when? Within their own lifetime. Jesus has to be coming back soon. And, and there's nothing false about that statement when we say the near return of Christ. Because in view of eternity, when Jesus comes back, it's near to us. And that is because, in a sense, we have been in the last days or the last section of redemptive history ever since the ministry of Jesus. We've been in that timeline. That's why people are always looking, when's Jesus coming back? Because we have this sense of it's been ushered in, it's been inaugurated, but things need to be brought to completion. All things still need to be made new. We have this yearning for the perfection that God has promised through his word that will come upon the return of Jesus. And so then, being, why do we start here? Being mindful of where we are in time, Peter draws our eyes, minds, and hearts towards this, our second point, a clarity of personal holiness. Personal holiness. Family, this topic needs to be discussed more in the life of the church. God desires that his people grow in holiness. Peter says this. We're going to look at the first part of verse 13, and then we'll skip to 14 and 16. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter quotes the Old Testament scriptures in Leviticus there. I want to pause here. A a good Bible study principle, family, if you're you're studying the Bible on your own, when you see a command in Scripture, write that down. Peter gives us direction here. He says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Anytime the Bible says do not do something or do something, you stop for a second, like, okay, underline that, highlight it, write it down, okay? Put on some masking tape on your mirror in the morning so that you can be reminded of that command of God. Another quick reminder, when you're studying Scripture, anytime a section of Scripture begins with the word, therefore, it should trigger something in us. Therefore is always drawing then application on what was previously said. So Peter's drawing on what we've preached on the last two weeks, and he's saying, because of what God accomplished in Christ Jesus, you should act accordingly. Therefore... Let's break this down. He begins with this statement. He says, preparing your minds for action and being clear-headed or sober-minded. Okay, the literal translation of this statement is actually a lot better. Peter says this. He says, gird the loins of your mind. What in the world does that mean? If we were to go back in... When this was written, 
Okay, the men of the time would wear uh, these long garments. Okay, they didn't wear pants. They didn't have, Levi Strauss hadn't made the jeans yet, okay? And so they had these long garments. They had a belt around their waist. And what Peter is saying, when they would say, gird your loins, is they would pull up their garments if they needed to move quickly. Because if you've ever tried to work out in jeans before, especially these new skinny jeans that guys are wearing, okay, they, kind of, they impede your movement, don't they? It's hard to move around in jeans. I mean, I'll be honest with you. When I, I go to the gym a few days a week, when I see someone come walking in with jeans, it just kind of makes me go, ooh. That doesn't look comfortable to work out in jeans. And so what they would do is they would, they would kind of hike up their garment if they needed to run after the sheep that had ran away from the flock or if they were going into battle, and they would tie it off with their belt so that their legs could move freely, right? I mean, who goes, who goes out and runs or walks in pants or, or a dress? You want to wear some loose-fitting shorts so that your legs can breathe and you can move freely, right? You want to move freely, And so that's what Peter's getting at here is the things that are inhabiting your brain that are holding you back, you need to pull those away and get hold of them so that you can have clarity of thought. Prepare your minds for action, he says. Loosen up your legs so that you can run and move The reality is, is that our minds are so occupied by so many different things. Okay, worry, stress, depression, anxiety, and even directly here he's saying be sober-minded. There's some people that are so intoxicated by substance that they're drunk and they have no clarity of thought. You ever been around somebody who's just belligerently drunk and they're just babbling and talking and they're making no sense and they can't even walk? Peter's saying, don't be like that, Christian. Be sober-minded. Don't let your mind become intoxicated so that you cannot see clearly. And there's so many, we automatically go to the drunkenness aspect of it, which is, don't get drunk. The Bible says that. But also our minds are so occupied with worry that sometimes we don't even have room to comprehend the scriptures. I think also we have in, I don't know when it's occurred, but over the last few generations, we've been, become so occupied with emotional compulsion that we don't think logically and clearly. Emotions take over and then we act off of emotions. Emotions aren't a bad thing when they're directed in the right way. God has given them to us. But sometimes we just need to stop, family, and think critically. And compare, just in the world, compare what's being taught according to, uh, and, and compare it to the Word of God. I'm going to say it. We, it was like rolling around in there. One area that I, I see this happening in is on the issue of homosexuality. We see, we see many Christians struggling with, in this present day, okay, is that sinful or not? Love is love. 
I've had, I have many friends who are practicing homosexuals who I love deeply, and you want to hear the truth? They're in sin if they continue to practice that lifestyle. Do you want to know why? Because the Word of God condemns it. My emotions wrestle with me, and I love that person. I, I want them to be happy. But the biggest source of freedom and happiness that they could have in life is a life where they flee from that type of sin. This is the difficulty of living in this present day and age. And we have to wrestle with that. We can't just give ourselves over to, I don't really want to deal with that conversation. Love people who are in sin and struggling with sin. Love them deeply. Show them the compassion of Christ. And one of the most loving and compassionate things that you can do in a wise and gentle and kind way is to point them to the truth of the Word of God. We have to be clear-minded. Okay, we have to wrestle with the emotions. And then we have to say, okay, what does the clear teaching of the Word of God say on this? Not some weird little guy that I watched on YouTube that said in the 1940s they changed the word around and that's not really what they meant with uh, this particular sin. And no, the Word of God is clear. Peter applying this image to the Christian life is saying this. He's saying, shed all the weight that is holding you back and prepare your mind for action. Be sober-minded. Be clear-headed. Okay, Peter's focusing on the mind first. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Right belief leads to right living. Right doctrine leads to, leads to right living. That begins in us understanding here and here. And then the outward expression of that is, is lived out. Then we act upon that. We seek to understand and grow in the knowledge of the things about God. And this then, when applied properly, leads to spiritual growth, which then leads to action. You see, we know this truth. We are declared holy and righteous through the work of Christ. That is salvation in the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and the ongoing intercession of Jesus. And in this present time frame, we are seeking to grow towards that declaration that we have already attained in Christ. Our faith then is a responsive faith. We're not acting in holiness to gain the favor of God prior to conversion. We're seeking to grow towards our position in Jesus after our conversion. We have it in Christ already. We're actively working towards that in our present life. And then Peter gives us an illustration. In a sense, he just says, God expects us to be obedient children. Parents in the room, when you give your kids instruction, what do you expect them to do? Obey it. Please do what I'm asking you to do. I want you to think about this in uh, terms of, of an adopted child. Adopted children are brought into the family. They're given the family name. They're children of the parents who have taken them into their homes. Oftentimes, uh, children adopted later in life 
need a time of adjustment to their new life. Structure and rules in their life may not have been a part of their life before they were adopted. So they're taught and disciplined, and then growth. These adopted parents expect their children to grow, their adopted children to grow. This growth doesn't affect their standing as a child, right? They still have the family name. They're still adopted into the family. But there is an expectation over time that that child is going to grow in obedience and understand the rules of the house. They seek to grow, hopefully, more towards the expectations of the parents who have adopted. And I believe that illustrates our standing. We've been adopted into God's family. We have his name. And now we're striving to grow towards that standing that we have already in Christ. Paul says this in Romans 12 too. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Which drives us to our next point, point three, clarity of God's holiness. Peter gives us a clarity of God's holiness. In speaking on, kind of backing up a little bit, in speaking on personal holiness, Peter cites uh, Leviticus 11.44. He says this, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Okay, hear this, church. A healthy fear of the Lord begins with God's holiness. I want you to think about the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, every time someone is confronted with the holiness of God, they're, they're taken aback, right? They take a step back. I want you to, we were just in Exodus. Think about Moses when he, he comes to the burning bush. What does he do? He, he takes off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. Think about the, the Israelites when they come to Mount Sinai and, and God's glory and holiness and his righteousness descends on the mountain. And it says that the Israelites were at the base of the mountain and they trembled in the presence of the Lord. Think about Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he's, he has this, this revelation of God and he's, he's brought into the throne room and he says this, Woe is me! And think about Paul in the New Testament when he's headed to Damascus to murder more Christians. God comes to him and boom! Knocks him down on his backside. Confronted by the holiness of of God. This is the God that we worship and love. This is the God that through Jesus, family, we call Father, and He calls us His children. And it says this in verse 17, and if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. How can God judge because He is perfect holy, and righteous. Hear this truth. God will judge you according to the life you have lived. For those in unbelief, that is, they don't have faith in Jesus, you will be judged according to your own work. And the scripture teaches this. If you are outside of Christ, you will not measure up to God's perfect, righteous 
standard. You need Jesus. You need the righteousness of Christ. For the believer, you are judged according to the righteousness that's been imputed or given to you through faith in Jesus. You're judged according to his work. And I believe the scripture teaches that you're judged for reward according to the life you lived after being born again. This, what does this mean? Your present life matters. Your good works, in a sense, are the receipt of what God did. It's the proof. Okay, we believe that we are saved through faith alone. We affirm this truth. But the proof of that is fruit in your life. If I bought something and brought it back and I didn't have the receipt, there's no proof that I actually purchased it. You've been purchased by the blood of Christ, and the receipt for that is a life well lived. It's fruit in your presence. It's growth in holiness. It matters. Our life matters. It also says in the passage that we are judged impartially. Okay, see, we oftentimes, we judge based, we judge partially, if we're honest. Someone pulls up next to me in the parking lot and, and they're in a busted car and they park a little too close. Like, man, I know that guy's going to dent my car. I judge partially. I, I looked at the car and I judged. But this says that we're judged impartially by God. In God's judgment, it doesn't matter your social standing, your economic standing, your ethnic status. They have no bearing on God's judgment. The family you were born into, only your deeds. Only your deeds. Then Peter concludes, he says this, conduct yourselves with fear before the Lord. Okay? Okay. I don't say that, and I don't think Peter's intention is that we're scared of God in Christ. We don't have to be scared of God. What he's getting at here is that we should live with a healthy fear of God. Let me, let me illustrate this. When I was growing up, I'm, I'm the third. I have two older brothers. We have three, three boys, two older brothers. And I sat from a distance and watched them make really dumb mistakes. And I saw my father discipline them rightly. Sometimes a little crazy. And I observed that and and within me grew a healthy fear of my father. Okay, kids should have a healthy fear of their parents that when they do something wrong and they disobey, that there's going to be a consequence. There's going to be discipline. For that, I think that that's what Peter's getting at, is that healthy fear. Okay, this is what a healthy fear looked like. When my dad came home from work, I knew he could put a whooping on me. But I ran out in that driveway and I gave him a hug. Because I loved to see my father when he got home from work. That's a healthy fear. Like, I know when I go wrong that my dad's going to hold me accountable to that. But I love my dad. That's the kind of fear that we have of God. We love him, but we know if we go astray, God's going to set you straight, right? God's going to correct your path. 
And so now Peter circles back around to our, our, first, our fourth point. He circles back around to the gospel. Number four, clarity of the cost of your redemption. Clarity of the cost of your redemption. Verses 18 to 21, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God, man, that is a beautiful passage of Scripture there. Hear this truth, church. God gave the most precious thing that he could to ransom you and set you free. He gave the blood of his perfect son, Jesus. It's more precious than a diamond or gold or silver, things that perish when they are tested with the fire of God. The blood of Jesus is precious and perfect and it will never perish under the weight of the Lord's judgment. The other beautiful thing is that he always knew that he would bring about redemption for his people in this manner. It says he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. I want you to hear this. God loves you so much He loves you so much that he planned from eternity that he would create you in his image and likeness and that when you rebelled against him, that he would come, he would descend from heaven, that he would take on flesh, that he would live perfectly and he would die on a cross in our place, shedding, as it says here, his precious blood for you. What a love to ponder. And so, the desire here, the desire of my heart is is to help draw you to a place where don't take the love of God for granted. It cost him much. Cost him the life of his son. Live every moment remembering the gospel that has been preached to you and the power that it had to help you overcome your futile ways of your past. Point number five. We have clarity of the word in the life of the believer. I love this. Clarity of the word in the life of the believer. Peter loves him some Bible. He says this in verses 23 to 25. We skip 22. We'll circle back around to that at the end. He says this, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living, this is beautiful, through the living and abiding word of God. For, then he, co- he quotes scripture, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, hear this, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this, is, this word is the good news, okay? In the original Greek, that's the same word that we get the word gospel from. The good news that was preached to you. Peter has a healthy respect for the word of God that we should all strive towards having ourselves. How did he get to this point? 
Because we know this from Scripture. Jesus himself revealed to Peter that the Scriptures pointed back to him, pointed to Jesus. His word tells us that he instructed them from the Scriptures about how they pointed to him, how they pointed to Jesus. And I know personally in studying this particular letter, there are, I mean, I was caught off guard by how much scripture is interwoven into 1 Peter. What do I mean? References to the Old Testament. There are few other books. In all honesty, I can only think of one other book that possibly quotes more scripture, and that's just because it's a longer book. It's the book of Hebrews. There are few other books that rival Peter's direct quotation of Scripture or just the, the in, it's just inferred in there back to the pointing us back to the Old Testament. Theology and doctrine drawn from the Old Testament. Nearly every passage that we come across throughout Peter is, is going to be linked back to the Old Testament. It's going to be linked to the Word of God. And here Peter comes right out and, and says it by quoting from uh, Isaiah 40. He says, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. That's such a, an important truth for us to grab a hold of, church. This isn't going anywhere and it hasn't changed. So what do we do? Remain in the word. Peter calls the word this, living and abiding. Alive and constant. We can think of it that way. Alive and constant. It's remaining. And then he concludes this. He says, this word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter here is saying this. The word of God boils down to one truth, one thing, the good news about Jesus Christ. From beginning to end, it's all about Jesus. And you have been born again, that is saved in a word that is living and abiding, remaining, holding, constant, Your old ways were put to death at the cross. You have been reborn to a life, he says repeatedly, that is imperishable. The word of the Lord remains forever. And so Peter then, drawing out of all this, gives us a beautiful point of application. Growth and holiness, understanding the judgment of God, the precious blood of Jesus applied through faith, and conveying the living and abiding word of the Lord must cause us, it brings us to our last point, it brings about a clarity of the outworking of God's love in loving one another. What's the result of all that Jesus has done? The result of his teaching in Scripture is that we would love one another. If you truly get this truth, the gospel, then the outflow of the gospel in our lives is to love others. That's why Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God, and the second is like it, love your neighbor or love other people. He says this in verse 22, having purified our souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Okay, another Bible principle, whenever you see a one another in there, write it down. Because it has to do with the church. 
something that we're doing within the body of Christ. He says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And how can we not love others when God has loved us in all of our own ugliness and sin and rebellion? The result is Christians have to be, must be the most gracious and merciful people in our communities. We should be the outworking of God's grace. Because it's the natural outworking of the work of Jesus. And this begins in the church. People outside of the church should look into the church and witness this sincere brotherly love in action that we love each other and we're ministering to each other and we're carrying one another's burdens and we're interceding on behalf of one another. We're praying for each other. We're providing for needs. It's, what, it's why the church was so explosive. In, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says God was adding to their number daily because people outside were looking in on the church and they said, I want some of that. Then he says that it comes from a pure heart, that we love one another earnestly from a pure heart. What does this mean? Okay, I believe it means this, that there isn't some sort of expectation that I'm going to get something back for my love that I show you. There's not a payday at the end of it. I'm loving you with a pure heart, just like God judges impartially. I'm giving my love within the body of Christ, not because of some sort of fruit that I'm going to receive back from you but just because of what Christ has done for me. I don't love others with the expectation of getting anything in return. And so that's a challenge to us. Is your love weighted on whether you're going to get anything in return from somebody? John says this of loving one another. He says this in 1 John chapter 3, 16 to 18. He says, by this we know love. He begins with the example of Jesus, that he laid down his life for us, And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? How could you? That's what John is saying. How could you close your heart off to somebody after all that Jesus has done to you? He said, I love this, little children, let us not love in in word or talk but in deed and in truth. He's saying, prove it. It's important for us to think of loving one another in in concentric circles in our lives. And so it it begins this way. It begins in our homes. That's how God's instruction goes. Home, body of Christ, community, world. Fathers, are you loving your wives well? Wives, are you loving your husbands well? That came out wrong. Husbands, are you loving your wives well? Wives, are you loving your husbands well? Fathers, are you loving your children well? Loving one another begins in the home and then spills out into the body of Christ, loving each other out into our community and to the ends of the earth. And so we end with this question as the band comes forward, I want to invite them to come forward. Where do you need to love others in a better way? In your home, be challenged in your home, in your church, and then in your community. As we transition now, we respond each and every week to the preaching of the word by receiving the Lord's Supper. 
Uh, This is a time when we remember the sacrifice of Christ. This is for Christians, for followers of Christ, those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus. And what we do in this time is we remember the sacrifice of Jesus. We see it represented in the two elements there, in the bread that represents the body of Christ given for you, and the juice which represents the blood of Christ shed for you. His blood covers our sin. It's precious, as his word says. And so we eat, drink, and remember our Savior. But we do something before we receive those elements. And I want to draw you to a particular thing this morning. When Christ came into the world, he lived a perfect life. He died. He resurrected. He ascended to heaven. He, he draws his people into uh, the family of God. And he did this. He reconciled a broken relationship, the broken relationship that we had with the Father. He reconciled a relationship. And so I want to draw your attention as we talked about loving one another this morning. As you receive the Lord's Supper, his word instructs that we would repent of sin and that we would seek reconciliation with those who we have broken relationships with. And so I want to draw you to that truth this morning as you eat and drink. Would you call upon God's Spirit to search your heart in those areas of life where you have broken and struggling relationships, that God would give you guidance and wisdom to reconcile those things. We are to be reconcilers as our Heavenly Father is a reconciler. Seek to understand areas where you need to repent and follow Jesus, and that you would just have an overwhelming sense of thankfulness as you eat and drink and remember your Savior. So we're going to do that for just a few moments.